This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Monday, everyone. Beginning of the week. So much to celebrate today, including Black History Month sure's starting more, today. I mean, sure's more excited about Black History Month than I am. I, I mean, it's just a lot of pep. In her step, I'm, I'm happy that she is representing the month so well already. First day, oh yeah, you knocking know, it um, out the park. Uh, I thank you, Ryan, for acknowledging and recognizing me, even though it's really about recognizing you today. I mean, I, you know, I think it's safe enough to say that you are, you know, carrying the torch. Oh yes, all right. Well, I appreciate um, you today. And every day for that matter. Uh, but for real, while we like to put fun at each other, um, we have a lot going on today. And we're so excited because it's an honor to have the president of the Human Rights Campaign, HRC, with us today. He wrote a really powerful statement about what this month means and how it's changed and how we can all reflect on it. So he's going to be joining us uh, right after this after actually in this hour on the show. Plus, Dr. John Paul is here to share advice on how to make sure you're not being performative when celebrating Black History Month. Uh, so a lot to learn and a lot to take in today. Oh, yeah. I think the one thing I like about today is that I love it when months start on like the Monday on the first. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I like that. I like how the calendar is already working in our favor. So. Yes. It's good. It's been flowing. It's been flowing since, you know, Biden jumped on board and became president. That's all I can say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's get into it. What's trending this hour as we uh, cover the news going on? Uh, Pres- Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the White House has yet to decide whether to revoke President Trump's access to post-presidency intelligence briefings. This is a good question. I've raised it with our intelligence teams or our national security team, I should say. Uh, It's something obviously that's under review, but um, there was not a conclusion unless I asked them about it, but I'm happy to follow up on it and see if there's more to share. Now, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that, that he has access to all of that information, but I guess they're going to be figuring it out and we have to trust that it's going to work out and not just implode. I don't think they're going to end up doing it, to be quite honest. I don't. I think especially if we see the trials end up in the way that we mm-hmm. hope that they're going to end up in, um, I don't think so. I don't think so. You think they're going to take it away? Well, yeah, because it's a privilege for post-president, like, pa- you know, past mm-hmm. presidents to know. And so, um, yeah, I just think that's going to be on the list of other things that we see kind of former President Trump get taken away from him because he didn't respect the office. And so I would assume that this is also a part of that. 
All right. Well, uh, let's move on to what's happening in New York right now. For all our listeners in New York City, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio on Sunday night issued a state of emergency order due to this monstrous storm that is, is expected to move into the city. Residents have been urged to stay at home during the storm with all non-essential travel restricted beginning at 6 a.m. today. He said this is a very dangerous storm and only those seeking medical treatment or medical supplies, essential workers uh, will be allowed on the roads. He added New Yorkers should stay home, keep the roads clear for emergency vehicles and let our plows work to keep us safe. Well, I remember those days, you know, growing up in Montreal, Canada, where we had to deal with that. So stay safe out there. Uh, thankfully, we all we have is rain here. That's what freaks us out here in California. Now, uh, finally, a House Democrat is demanding the Biden administration vet social media accounts of military recruits and service members for possible links to extremist groups, citing an urgent threat in the aftermath of the storming of the U.S. Capitol last month. Representative Jackie Spire of California urged Biden in a letter to issue an executive order because of inexcusable um, authorities who did not examine social media accounts when granting security clearances to military recruits or other federal employees, despite collection and reporting of other intrusive private data, such as financial and behavioral health information. So she wrote that she's very alarmed by the connections between the personnel and violent extremists, and that the current approach by the Pentagon and the federal government was insufficient to the threat from extremist movements. Wow. Okay. So that's being presented right now. And uh, that's what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? I mean, New Year's, same old controversy because uh, Saturday Night Live's Michael Shea decided to make a transphobic joke. It's time for the T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So the head writer of Saturday Night Live, Michael Shea, um, found himself in hot water once again after delivering a weekend update punchline that may... Um, that many viewers felt was transphobic and insensitive. Here is that unfortunate moment. President Biden signed an executive order repealing Trump's ban on transgender people serving in the military. Fortunately, yes, good news. Good news, except Biden is calling the policy don't ask, don't tuck, which is, which is not good news. So as you all heard, the audience laughed, but Michael and Colin didn't seem to realize that the joke, which at this point had been workshopped and rehearsed, was in poor taste. Um, Shira, after hearing that clip and hearing that joke that he made, um, awful, right? This is like a joke that should not be made right now, ever, but like we know better right now. Well, it's low-hanging fruit, right? Yeah, and you think that exactly. a, a comedian um, of his caliber and him doing this type of thing, it just feels like, why? It, it's not even a smart joke. It's stupid. And also, stop caring so much about trans folks' genitalia. It's absolutely gross. And back in October mm -hmm. 2019, um, he's also been in this hot water multiple times. Back in 2019, the Weekend Update host misgendered and dead-named Caitlyn Jenner as a part of an extended bit about Kanye West. My question is, is there really no one in the SNL writer's room willing to check their boss at this point? It's strange because we know there's LGBTQ plus representation there in the writer's room from the stars. And so either they they don't see the problematic nature of this or they're saying something to him and he doesn't care. So, uh, you yeah. know, hopefully he learned his lesson from this one. Well, let us know your thoughts. I got more T-Report coming up later in the show. Well, coming up next on the show, Trump's legal drama. And what's his strategy as we move into the impeachment trial soon? That's next. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Trump's lawyers are coming and going as his impeachment trial gets closer. And here to give us the scoop is Amy Gardner, a national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks again for joining us. Happy to be here. So he announced two lawyers and then they resigned days later. What is going on? This seems like it's a lot of drama. Well, so what we learned in our reporting uh, yesterday is that uh, the, the, this latest team of lawyers to part ways with the former president um, were not comfortable arguing in, in the impeachment trial that's coming next week that uh, there was massive voter fraud in the 2020 election, which uh, President Trump wanted them to do. And, you know, there, there are a number of reasons why that might be the case. Um, we did not get a chance to speak to the lawyers directly, but we spoke to others close with the president and we spoke to Republicans and lawyers. And we got the sense that um, it doesn't make sense to make that argument because there's not actually evidence of widespread voter fraud in 2020. And in fact, the president is virtually zero for 60 or so in court cases trying to prove that there was voter fraud in a variety of states around the country. Um, and, and But what there is, is a, a Republican Senate caucus that believes and voted last week, most of them, that uh, it's not constitutional to impeach or convict a president who's no longer in office. So the way that was described to us is that that's the easy win. So why would you pass over the strategy that's an easy win for something that's more complicated and not accurate? Doesn't make sense. There's no evidence that it's true. And that could alienate some Republican senators who want to move beyond the false allegations of voter fraud that have dominated the Republican uh, Party the last several months. Yeah, so we saw these past uh, lawyers just quit, but now that he has a a couple new lawyers, what's the difference of them just kind of giving him what he wants at this point? Will we actually see them um, now argue these false uh, claims that he's really trying to push? We don't know. Um, We do know that one of the lawyers, who's a guy named David Schoen, uh, who's based in Atlanta, who who spoke to one of my colleagues last night, has said that he's not going to be making the voter fraud argument in the Senate. Um, We have not heard from the other new lawyer, whose name is Bruce Castor. He's a former district attorney from the suburbs of Philadelphia. So we will learn tomorrow at noon what kind of argument they're going to be making. I did just get off the phone with a uh, lawyer who knows Mr. Castor and who has worked for the Trump campaign, who does not believe that they will be making the voter fraud argument, who believes that President Trump has been persuaded that that's not Mm. the best, easiest strategy to take in this case. Uh, Amy Gardner, again, is with us, national political reporter for The Washington Post. So with all this knowledge, how are Democrats planning on proceeding right now? And knowing that the key test vote last week happened and all but five Republicans backed Trump in an objection to the uh, proceeding, and that started by Senator Rand Paul, like, where do they go from here with that knowledge? Well, I think that what you're going to see in the brief that's coming tomorrow morning, but then in the trial itself, when we when that gets underway next week, they have built a case that's that is vividly 
um, that's a vivid compilation of what happened on January 6th with video that we haven't seen before of the protesters at the Stop the Steal rally that Wednesday morning. So you'll be able to hear President Trump in the background speaking at that rally, and you'll see those protesters and hear them on their own cell phone videos saying, let's go, let's go down, let's storm the Capitol, that kind of thing. Um, we're going to see never before seen footage from inside the Capitol of the violence and the, the, the real intense ugliness that a lot of us have seen in some of those clips outside the west front of the Capitol, for instance, the horrific video of the, uh, the Metropolitan Police officer being dragged down the stairs face down. We've all seen that video, but there will be more of that. The, the Democratic strategy basically is to not allow Republicans to forget how horrific that day was for all of them who lived through it inside the building. Um, one other piece that I think is really interesting, the rules of this trial still have not been set. We still don't know whether witnesses will be allowed to testify, whether the Democrats will be allowed to call witnesses. If they do, they'll have to let the Trump team also call witnesses, which extends the length of this thing. And so while there are a lot of Democrats who want this trial to happen, who certainly want the conviction to happen, there are others who feel like it's a distraction away from President Biden's momentum in the beginning of his term to get things done, to get this COVID, bill passed to get a stimulus bill passed. And, uh, and so there's a little bit of a conflict and some tension there. But if they are allowed to call witnesses, uh, one uh, possibility that Democrats in the House, among the House managers have been discussing is whether they would call police officers from the US Capitol Police and the Ooh. Metropolitan Police Department wow. to testify, which would be an incredibly emotional riveting nationally televised mm -hmm. scene from the well of the Senate where you have Republican lawmakers, the party of the police forces of our country, the party of law and order, listening to police officers describe officers describe what they went through. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then still most of them likely voting against conviction. That's crazy. Well, Amy Gardner, I mean, you just brought up so much. We're like oh, the cliffhanger here. Uh, thank you again for being here with us today. We've got to wrap. All right. Thanks, guys. Now coming up on the show, HRC President Alfonso David joins us next to share how we should reflect on Black History Month differently this year. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Human rights campaign president Alfonso David wrote a very powerful piece on the beginning of Black History Month and reflecting on the contributions that Black people have consistently made to our democracy. He joins us right now. What an honor. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, now, I want to unpack what you wrote here since we have you on. How is this Black History Month different than other years? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think this Black History Month is different because there's a level of awareness that I don't believe has existed in our collective consciousness for quite some time. Um, we've had Black Lives Matter has existed for a very long time but is taken on a renewed resonance, I think this year, because in part because of COVID-19, uh, we have been stuck in our homes. We have been in some instances glued to our television screens and radio stations and our smartphones. And we're getting a barrage of information coming through. And I think it, pre it presented a perfect storm, if you will. People were unable to deny or look away from the realities of George Floyd and the George Floyds of the world. It is not the first time that a black man has been killed by law enforcement. We all know that. 
But it is the first time that I think we saw the reactions that we saw. And I attribute that in part to the fact that we were all having an experience in COVID-19 and we were all having a global experience that forced people to confront systemic racism in the way that they haven't confronted before. You couldn't go to the movie theater. You couldn't go somewhere else. You couldn't ignore the reality of what that video showed people. And I think that is why we are in a unique space to really approach Black lives in a very different way than we have in the past. Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, mm -hmm. everything to that. And I, I think it's really interesting when you talk, think about intersectionality, right? And you being HRC's first Black president in its 40-year history, I wonder how do you bring uh, you know, your intersectionality to the table and how have you been reflecting on that as uh, you know, the acting president right now? Well, what I've done, uh, when I took over the role, even before I actually accepted the job, I was very clear to the board and others that I wanted to make sure we debunk the hierarchies of identity. What I mean by that is we all walk into different rooms in our lives and we know that depending on which identity you have, you're treated differently. For those of us who have multiply marginalized identities, it's much more challenging. I'm black, I'm gay, and I'm an immigrant. And in many circles, those identities don't, don't rise to the top. Uh, so I wanted to make sure we recalibrated the priorities for the organization and focus on people who are multiply marginalized, because that is the only way that we can actually achieve liberation, in my mind. If we only focus on those, the have-nots, if you will, if we only focus on those and their priorities, we will never actually achieve liberation. I don't believe any marginalized group in this country, any racial group in this country, racial minority that is, has achieved liberation. None of us, not women, not black people, not brown people, not LGBTQ people, not people living with disabilities. I don't believe that we have achieved liberation. And I believe the way to do it is to focus on people who are multiply marginalized because it gets to the core of identity and why we're being treated differently than others. We're talking again to the president of HRC, Alfonso David. Uh, so with that said, I guess what actions are you making the HRC take so that becomes a reality, everything you spoke to just now? So when I took over the job about a year and a half ago, I gave a speech um, and then the title of the speech is See Beyond Yourself. How can I get people within our community, whether they're members, supporters, or otherwise, to see beyond themselves and place themselves in the shoes of those who are less advantaged or disadvantaged, if you will? How do you put yourself in the shoes of a Black transgender woman who's afraid of walking home at night because she may never make it back? The number of eight, uh, transgender people who were killed in the United States last year, primarily black and brown, more than 44, more than any other year in recorded history. Also, I wanted to prioritize uh, the, the plight of HIV affecting black and brown communities. I wanted to make sure that the priorities of the organization were directly focused on people who are multiply marginalized. Uh, I worked with some of my other colleagues to make sure we took an active role in engaging in uh, police transformation, if you will. How do we transform policing? Because policing is disproportionately impacting black and brown people. And how do we talk about issues like poverty? 
within the LGBTQ community, one out of five LGBTQ people live in poverty. Uh, but when you talk to a member of the general public, they would be shocked at that statistic because when they think of the LGBTQ community, the assumption is that we're all affluent, that we're all male and we're all white. And that is just not the case, that's not the reality. So I've really focused on uh, prioritizing issues that are affecting multiply marginalized people and advancing those priorities to make sure that people see beyond themselves. So we have to take a quick little break, but when we get back, I would love to know your thoughts about vaccine hesitancy when it comes to black and brown communities. So don't y'all go anywhere. We got more of the HRC president, Alfonso David, joining us up next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We are back with Human Rights Campaign President Alfonso David, and it is so great to have you here today, February 1st, the first day of Black History Month. Oh my goodness, the first day. Happy Black History Month, by the way. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> you too. So I want to just jump right in because many black and brown folks, especially queer and trans, we are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Um, and of course, there's still some skepticism because of the history with our country um, of accepting the vaccine. So I was wondering with someone in kind of your position of power, how do we once shift that narrative and that hesitancy? Um, and is there anything that HRC is kind of doing to make sure that queer and trans folks have the um, accessibility to the vaccine once we get it? Yes. Uh, let me deal with the first question that you raised. Uh, there is un an understandable uh, concern about taking vaccine if you're black and brown because black and brown people have been used as guinea pigs in the past um, for drugs in this country and other parts of the world. So I understand that concern. Also, uh, black LGBTQ people and brown LGBTQ people have been disproportionately impacted, especially if you're trans, not only with respect to employment, but also health concerns. So those are real concerns that we shouldn't ignore. Nevertheless, I think that we have to participate in the process of accessing the vaccine. Um, vaccines, I should say, because there are multiple vaccines out there, different companies are sort of advancing their products. What we're doing is making sure we engage in an education effort with the new administration, with our members and supporters and others to make sure they understand, yes, we cannot ignore the past. We cannot ignore the concerns that some may have about taking a vaccine. Yet, this we're in new territory here and we're all have to participate in ridding ourselves of COVID-19. We can't not take this vaccine or these vaccines uh, because then we will even be at a, at a higher susceptibility rate of getting COVID-19. So we're going to be engaging with the new administration. We've already talked to them uh, a number of times about policies and programs and education efforts to make sure that people are aware of the value of taking these vaccines and put themselves in a position where they're not exposed to COVID-19. Definitely. And the Biden administration has already done a lot in terms of executive orders. What is something you're looking forward to push that hasn't been done yet? Well, we ha we advanced uh, a policy a booklet. It was more than 85 policy recommendations to the Biden campaign. They embraced those policy recommendations. And in fact, as you said, have issued a few executive orders. We're still waiting for, and it's only been two weeks, not even two weeks since the new administration came in. So they've done tremendous amount of work uh, since they, they came into office. But we're looking for an interagency working group to address violence against the transgender community. 
We're looking for the federal government to classify conversion therapy for what it is, a fraudulent business practice. We're looking for them to advance an interagency working group on global issues affecting the LGBTQ community. We know in 69 countries in this, in, uh, on the globe, LGBTQ people are treated as criminals. In some cases can be killed for being who they are. So those are just three examples. And we're also looking for them to repeal and rescind regulations that were advanced by the Trump administration that would seek to take away health care from LGBTQ people during a global pandemic. Well, it has been so amazing having you on. Really, what a pleasure. We hope you can come back. Uh, that was Alfonso David, the president of the Human Rights Campaign. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Now coming up on the show, more Nobel Peace Prize nominees raising eyebrows. Details next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We are back with Human Rights Campaign President Alfonso David, and it is so great to have you here today, February 1st, the first day of Black History Month. Oh my goodness, the first day. Happy Black History Month, by the way. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> you too. So I want to just jump right in because many black and brown folks, especially queer and trans, we are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Um, and of course, there's still some skepticism because of the history with our country um, of accepting the vaccine. So I was wondering with someone in kind of your position of power, how do we once shift that narrative and that hesitancy? Um, and is there anything that HRC is kind of doing to make sure that queer and trans folks have the um, accessibility to the vaccine once we get it? Yes. Uh, let me deal with the first question that you raised. Uh, there is un an understandable uh, concern about taking vaccine if you're black and brown, because black and brown people have been used as guinea pigs in the past um, for drugs in this country and other parts of the world. So I understand that concern. Also, uh, black LGBTQ people and brown LGBTQ people have been disproportionately impacted, especially if you're trans not only with respect to employment, but also health concerns. So those are real concerns that we shouldn't ignore. Nevertheless, I think that we have to participate in the process of accessing the vaccine. Um, vaccines, I should say, because there are multiple vaccines out there, different companies are sort of advancing their, their products. What we're doing is making sure we engage in an education effort with the new administration, with our members and supporters and others to make sure they understand, yes, we cannot ignore the past. We cannot ignore the concerns that some may have about taking a vaccine. Yet, this we're in new territory here and we all have to participate in ridding ourselves of COVID-19. We can't not take this vaccine or these vaccines uh, because then we will even be at a, at a higher susceptibility rate of getting COVID-19. So we're going to be engaging with the new administration. We've already talked to them uh, a number of times about policies and programs and education efforts to make sure that people are aware of the value of taking these vaccines and put themselves in a position where they're not exposed to COVID-19. Definitely. And the Biden administration has already done a lot in terms of executive orders. What is something you're looking forward to push that hasn't been done yet? Well, we, ha we advanced uh, a policy a booklet. It was more than 85 policy recommendations to the Biden campaign. They embraced those policy recommendations and, in fact, as you said, have issued a few executive orders. We're still waiting for, and it's only been two weeks, not even, <laughs> two weeks since the new administration came in. So they've done tremendous amount of work uh, since they, they came into office. 
but we're looking for an interagency working group to address violence against the transgender community. We're looking for the federal government to classify conversion therapy for what it is, a fraudulent business practice. We're looking for them to advance an interagency working group on global issues affecting the LGBTQ community. We know in 69 countries in this, in, uh, on the globe, LGBTQ people are treated as criminals, in some cases can be killed for being who they are. So those are just three examples. And we're also looking for them to repeal and rescind regulations that were advanced by the Trump administration that would seek to take away health care from LGBTQ people during a global pandemic. Well, it has been so amazing having you on. Really, what a pleasure. We hope you can come back. Uh, that was Alfonso David, the president of the Human Rights Campaign. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Now coming up on the show, more Nobel Peace Prize nominees raising eyebrows. Details next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how not to be performative during Black History Month, plus how the generational gap in the White House is going to inform its policies. That and more on this hour of Let's Go There. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour, shall we? Now, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced indoor dining would resume soon on Valentine's Day, February 14th, to be exact. And now he says the call for restaurant workers to have higher vaccine priority is a cheap and insincere discussion. Tell me who you want to remove from eligibility. You want to add someone? We already don't have enough. Who do you want to remove? You want to remove teachers, police, fire? 65 plus, who do you want to remove? Oh, no answer. It's, uh, it's a cheap, uh, insincere discussion. Now, here's the thing. Uh, he did what he had to do with opening up the restaurants because of the economy and such, and he was being asked to do that. That said, he did not promise the vaccine priority. Does that make sense if we had the resources? Totally, but as he mentions, we don't. On the other hand, the cheap and sincere discussion part is where I have an issue with what he said, because it's a bit harsh and it's uh, not compassionate right now. It seems like he's just frustrated. Um, I think it's time to have the conversation that Cuomo and Trump are cut from the same cloth, in my opinion. Really? No. Yeah. I think the delivery of some things um, that obviously is completely different because Trump is the worst. But I think Cuomo, and especially in a damning New York Times piece that came out literally today, um, of him one second guessing experts expertise and it's Dr. Sanjay Gupta actually having to go on CNN talking about it's irresponsible to have someone of his level to kind of talk about either one the media or how experts are handling these things and uh, it's really a it's a it's a piece that I think everyone should kind of check out um, because basically it shows that he abused his ego and power to dismiss public health officials throughout the pandemic response and so yeah, I think him saying something like this and with that little cheap shot at the end, at the end of the day, he works for the American people. People pay him by paying their taxes. And so if he needs to figure out ways of handling things, whether or not he's frustrated or not, but getting the job done because that's the job that he wanted. Yeah, in the end, he's also a New Yorker, I guess. So that's what we get, his New York attitude. As uh, Biden is focusing on stimulus talks this week, many are speaking out. And including Republicans, uh, Governor Jim Justice was on CNN and talked about large scale stimulus. I mean, at the end of the day, really and truly, Poppy, what we need to do is we need to we need to understand 
that trying to be per se fiscally responsible at this point in time with what we've got going on in this country if we actually throw away some money right now so what we have really got to move and get people taken care of now former white house senior advisor jared kushner and his deputy avi berkowitz were nominated by a friendly attorney on Sunday for the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, these Nobel Peace Prize nominees this year are coming in hot. Uh, They've been nominated for their role in negotiating four normalization deals between Israel and Arab nations known as the Abraham Accords. Uh, And this has been controversial because a lot of people have just said this was kind of a fake negotiation. One, these talks have already happened. And what was done to get this deal is also in question. Was it really something that will create peace in the long run? And I thought this was an award that people deserved, right? And I think Jared Kushner hasn't done anything this entire time he was in administration. One, he didn't know what he was doing because of the lack of experience. And then two, he just, he didn't do anything that was worth. And so this idea, it it feels like the Nobel Peace Prize is like, People just get nominated at any point. You're using your power and your wealth. And I will say later on uh, in the show, we are highlighting someone who actually deserves their nomination. Um, But (laughs) for him to get this, it makes no sense in my opinion. So here's the thing. Just because you're nominated doesn't mean you win. And a lot of times it does come from people on their board or people who have won before. So you're going to see a whole smorgasbord of But that's the issue. that The people who have won or who have been nominated before nominating what folks because they're what? They're just their friends? Like it's not anything that's in depth. Like Jared Kushner, what did he do to deserve that? high level of reward points made and that was what's trending this hour what's happening in entertainment news ryan uh okay so we got some sad news uh to Mm. report dustin diamond aka screech from saved by the bell we literally just talked about him and this diagnosis of him dealing with stage four cancer unfortunately today uh it's been reported that he died at 44 um Wow. I mean, one, what a young age to die. But a rep um, basically has said that he died this morning. His condition had greatly declined since last week, and he was taken off of a breathing machine in an attempt to get him to hospice care. His girlfriend was by his side when he passed, and we're told he did not suffer. So we're sending tons, tons of love uh, to his family and his girlfriend and anyone around. Cause it's just, it's just really sad. Like it's just really, really yeah. sad. And, and I know he had stage four cancer, but it happens so quickly. It's just it, like, yeah. Yeah. It started, really his health bad. started to decline really, really quickly. But, um, I had other stories. I got another one coming up next hour. Don't go anywhere. That's your T report for right now. Well, next up on the show, how age diversity and the presidential cabinet can affect policies and programs and what that will look like moving forward. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, how not to be performative during Black History Month, plus how the generational gap in the White House is going to inform its policies. That and more on this hour of Let's Go There. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour, shall we? Now, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced indoor dining would resume soon on Valentine's Day, February 14th, to be exact. And now he says the call for restaurant workers to have higher vaccine priority is a cheap and insincere discussion. Tell me who you want to remove from eligibility. You want to add someone? We already don't have enough. 
Who do you want to remove? You want to remove teachers, police, fire, 65 plus? Who do you want to remove? Oh, no answer. It's, uh, it's a cheap, uh, insincere discussion. Now, here's the thing. Uh, he did what he had to do with opening up the restaurants because of the economy and such, and he was being asked to do that. That said, he did not promise the vaccine priority. Does that make sense if we had the resources? Totally. But as he mentions, we don't. On the other hand, the cheap and sincere discussion part is where I have an issue with what he said because it's a bit harsh and it's uh, not compassionate right now. It seems like he's just frustrated. Um, I think it's time to have the conversation that Cuomo and Trump are cut from the same cloth, in my opinion. Really? No. Yeah. I think the delivery of some things um, that obviously is completely different because Trump is the worst. But I think Cuomo, and especially in a damning New York Times piece that came out literally today um, of him, one second guessing experts expertise. And then Dr. Sanjay Gupta actually having to go on CNN talking about it's irresponsible to have someone of his level to kind of talk about either one, the media or how experts are handling these things. And uh, it's really a it's a it's a piece that I think everyone should kind of check out um, because basically it shows that he abused his ego and power to dismiss public health officials throughout the pandemic response. And so yeah, I think him saying something like this and with that little cheap shot at the end, at the end of the day, he works for the American people. People pay him by paying their taxes. And so if he needs to figure out ways of handling things, whether or not he's frustrated or not, but getting the job done because that's the job that he wanted. Yeah, in the end, he's also a New Yorker, I guess. So that's what we get, his New York attitude. As uh, Biden is focusing on stimulus talks this week, many are speaking out. And including Republicans, uh, Governor Jim Justice was on CNN and talked about large scale stimulus. I mean, at the end of the day, really and truly, Poppy, what we need to do is we need to we need to understand that trying to be, per se, fiscally responsible at this point in time with what we've got going on in this country. If we actually throw away some money right now, so what? We have really got to move and get people taken care of. Now, former White House senior advisor Jared Kushner and his deputy Avi Berkowitz were nominated by a friendly attorney on Sunday for the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, these Nobel Peace Prize nominees this year are coming in hot. Uh, They've been nominated for their role in negotiating four normalization deals between Israel and Arab nations known as the Abraham Accords. Uh, And this has been controversial because a lot of people have just said this was kind of a fake negotiation. One, these talks have already happened. And what was done to get this deal is also in question. Was it really something that will create peace in the long run? And I thought this was an award that people deserved, right? And I think Jared Kushner hasn't done anything this entire time he was in administration. One, he didn't know what he was doing because of the lack of experience. And then two, he just, he didn't do anything that was worth. And so this idea, it it feels like the Nobel Peace Prize is like, people just get nominated at any point. You're using your power and your wealth. And I will say later on uh, in the show, we are highlighting someone who actually deserves their nomination. Um, But 
<laughs> for him to get this, it makes no sense in my opinion. So here's the thing. Just because you're nominated doesn't mean you win. And a lot of times it does come from people like, yeah, on their board or people who have won before. So you're going to see a whole smorgasbord of But that's nominees. the issue. You're, that The people who have won or who have been nominated before nominating what folks because they're what? They're just their friends? Like it's not anything that's in depth. Like Jared Kushner, what did he do to deserve that? high level of reward points made and that was what's trending this hour what's happening in entertainment news ryan uh okay so we got some sad news uh to Mm. report dustin diamond aka screech from saved by the bell we literally just talked about him and this diagnosis of him dealing with stage four cancer unfortunately today uh it's been reported that he died at 44 um Wow, I mean, one, what a young age to die, but a rep yeah. uh, basically has said that he died this morning. His condition had greatly declined since last week, and he was taken off of a breathing machine in an attempt to get him to hospice care. His girlfriend was by his side when he passed, and we're told he did not suffer. So we're sending tons, tons of love uh, to his family and his girlfriend and anyone around. Cause it's just, it's just really sad. Like it's just really, really yeah. sad. And, and I know he had stage four cancer, but it happens so quickly. It's just it, like, yeah. Yeah. It started, his health started to decline really, really quickly. But, um, I had other stories. I got another one coming up next hour. Don't go anywhere. That's your tea report for right now. Well, next up on the show, how age diversity in the presidential cabinet can affect policies and programs and what that will look like moving forward. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. President Biden's cabinet is looking to be the most diverse ever, not just in their backgrounds, but their age as well. So how will this impact his policies? Well, joining us right now is Marsha Ori, a founding director for the Center for Population Health and Aging at Texas A&M University and a professor at the School of Public Health. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So how will this generational gap between the president and those he has appointed impact how they look at policies right now? Well, I think that we can talk about cohorts. That's people born at different points of time. And so if you're older, you might be part of the silent generation and you're going to be much more conservative. If you're a baby boomer in the 60s, you grew up in the sort of cultural revolution. Baby boomers, when they were in you know, their 20s, were very liberal. About half of the baby boomers now are much more conservative. But what's really noted is Generation Z, that's the group that is just voting for the first time in this election, they're probably gonna be the most progressive of all groups. So what it means is if you have a cabinet with people of different ages, you're probably gonna have different perspectives. Um, It would be much different if everybody was Biden's age, 70 and older. Biden has one of the most age diverse uh, cabinets. It ranges from Mayor Pete at 39 to um, Yellen, who's the economist, who's in her mid 70s. When they talk, they're going to have to have shared history that's very different. You know, age has been such a centerpiece uh, this political season. Uh, Is this the norm? And did it really have an effect on voters' decisions uh, making this election season? I think it definitely did when we talk about that younger group, that younger group, the Generation Z, voted Democratic. So they probably made a difference in a community, a state like Georgia. That's probably 
their input was why we have two senators who are Democratic versus if they hadn't voted, there may have been Republicans in that uh, state, those state elections. Again, we're talking to Marsha Ori, who uh, is the founding director for the Center for Population Health and Aging at Texas A&M University. Now, you kind of touched on this just now, but I, I want to get more into this. You uh, mentioned in your article in the conversation where we found you, uh, different generations having different political identities. So what's the new one we are seeing emerge now and how will it differ from the past? Well, the new one is obviously younger people born after you know, 1996 and older first time they've ever voted, they tend to be more progressive, they're pro-environment, they're pro-social justice, they're pro-civil rights. So that generation is going to be much different than an earlier generation. I just think it's super interesting, this idea about age, because we literally saw the kind of division when it came to AOC and the squad Mm -hmm. and Nancy Pelosi, right? Um, And I even think about, you know, the like the patriarchy and misogyny. How does gender play into into this? Like, especially when it comes to younger women versus older women. I think that you're absolutely right. Age is just one factor. And so let me just start not with gender, but race and ethnicity. No matter how old you are, people of color tend to vote more Democratic. Women, in general, tend to vote more Democratic. So um, it really does depend. It's not just your age, but it's your age, it's your gender, it's your social class, it's your um, race and ethnicity. That's what's going to determine how you vote and the kind of policies you support or not. But age is not destiny. I think it's really important because Biden is the oldest president we've ever had. And he has signed just in his first 10 days, very, very progressive um, executive actions that I think are very relevant to the LGBTQ community. And he's an older guy. He's not a progressive. He's not a Generation Zer, but he is very um, progressive when it comes to equal rights. Definitely. How do you think um, this uh, will lead by example, maybe for other uh, companies or communities moving forward? I feel like uh, when you see this happening at the government level, you say, "Okay, this is might it might be what we see um, with other groups uh, in terms of how they make decisions and how they decide to put together their cohorts. I think that's really important because government often leads and companies follow. I mean, sometimes it's the opposite. But when you think about insurance ability, um, government can say who gets insured and what they get insured for through the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare uh, services. But then the commercial insurance agencies will follow. The government makes certain rules about discriminatory practices, and those get followed by business. So I think having a message um, from the top there's a better hope of it trickling down. It certainly can go both ways because um, politicians are supposed to be responsive to their constituents. 
Of course. We hope so, right? Uh, again, that was Marsha Ori, uh, who's the director for the Center for Population Health and Ages- Aging at Texas A&M University, also a professor at the School of Public Health. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, coming up on the show, how do you celebrate Black History Month without being performative? And what brands are doing just wrong? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Black History Month is here, and with that comes marketing and products to celebrate this month. But at what point does it become performative, and how do you make sure to not be falling into that trap, even though you might have the best intentions? Well, back with us is Dr. John Paul, who's a speaker, writer, social justice educator, focusing on issues relating to gender, race, and media. Thanks for being here. Happy February 1st, Black History Month. Happy Black History Month to everybody. How y'all doing? <laughs> you are better now that you're here. Uh, <laughs> Thanks so for having me. Let's start with the first question uh, for all the allies, accomplices listening here, uh, and, and for companies too. How does someone know if what they're doing is performative? Yeah. So I think the first thing is, you know, I kind of always think about what happened back in June of 2020 and this idea that I saw so many folks hashtagging Black Lives Matter and putting up the Black Square. And then when you peruse the Instagram, you saw that there were no Black people or Black individuals throughout the other months or the other times on the Instagram or Facebook. And so I think for me, when I ask the question, is this individual being performative? Is this organization being performative? What things, what what markers do they have in place to make sure that they're advocating, supporting, and helping Black individuals to have their voices and their experiences lifted in a way that doesn't feel icky or doesn't feel as if it, it, it's about the person doing it? I think for me, what it really comes down to is that at no time should the conversation or should the work look like it's being done for you as the individual or the organization that's posting it. It should be about specifically wanting to protect Black, Black trans, et cetera, et cetera, individuals in whole. Yeah, I completely agree. And I I think, you know, we have a conversation here on the show a lot about intention versus impact and what's really important here, right? You know, as non-Black folks out there, what should they be focusing on? Yeah, I think when when I talk about, you know, what should they be focusing on? I think the first thing specifically in this pandemic is making sure that black people get paid for their time and for their energy and for their thoughts. We have a lot of black individuals who are laboring. And when I say laboring, I'm even talking about the organizations that hire DEI black, they hire black people into DEI positions specifically and overwork them to fix a problem that they honestly didn't even create. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that is really important when we start talking about how to protect Black individuals is giving them the space and the freedom to really speak from a place of truth and not policing or or feeding into conversations around respectability politics. If you are a person that is not uh, of, of Black descent, and I know that the Black descent piece can be so, you know, our, the diaspora is huge, but if a Black person of anywhere is talking about their experience and you say it makes me feel uncomfortable, then ultimately what you're doing is you're decentering the Black experience and the Black voice in that moment. And so I think specifically that's what is most important here is how are you centering Black people, Black voices, Black experiences, not just the bad experiences, right, but the positive ones too, to make sure that Black people feel as if their voices matter in a, in a moment, not only just now, but beyond the month of February as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you're hearing from Dr. John Paul, who's a social justice educator as we talk about Black History Month and performative activism or allyship. Uh, what about companies who are launching these products, right? Um, who 
you know, we saw Apple with the Apple Watch, and we've seen so many. And Dr. John loves them some Apple. Let me just say that. Yes, I am very much an Apple fan. And the first thing my partner came home and asked me was, are you going to buy the new Apple, you know, the black Apple Watch? And I said, why? Um, You know, I think in this moment is it's just it, it makes it very clear to me that these companies and even companies I love, right, we all can't escape capitalism. We all can't escape um, all of the things that go into making these companies what they are. Obviously, they're selling a product and they're going to do whatever they can to keep the money coming in. But for me, it's just very, very obvious that many companies, including Apple, they don't have Black people at the table. They don't have Black people on their marketing teams. They don't have, and when I say Black people, you know, I want to make it very clear, and this might be testy to some people, just because you're Black doesn't mean you're Black. And so what I mean by that is, is that folks who truly understand what the Black experience is and what it may mean to someone like myself, who is in a moment of looking around and going, is this performative? Um, You know, I don't need a watch. I don't need an app. I don't need to be reminded to close rings with other black people what apple could be doing specifically is fueling money back to black communities making sure that young black kids like myself when i was a kid in in high school i wish i would have had access to coding i wish i would have known what that was um doing whatever they can to make sure that they're they're making the pop line the pipeline accessible to black children black people specifically black trans women those are the things that apple could have done this month versus just putting out an apple watch and a couple of other things yeah so. because essentially they're branding it as black unity but they're asking black folks to buy it so i have to Correct. purchase something that is for me already like i don't get it so i think the the real conversation for me this conversation can be exhausting right having right. it mm-hmm. every time do you think we'll ever get to a point where we don't have to have this conversation? I think I'm, I'm just going to say this as long as we're comfortable with white supremacy and and folks are vying for power. No, um, I genuinely believe that there's go- it, it, it means that there's going to have to be a lot of people. And this includes some black people, too, that are going to have to relinquish their privilege and are going to have to relinquish elements of power that they've been able to ascertain and making sure that other individuals, specifically black folks like myself, queer black people, trans black people, black folks of of, you know, of other countries, other places, other experiences have access to these kind of conversations. And so as long as people put themselves first or that they want to, you know, uphold whiteness and white supremacy, I don't think we're ever going to be able to get away from this conversation. Well, you're amazing. It's so great always having you on. That was Dr. John Paul. Thanks again. Now coming up, the TV shows bringing COVID-19 into their storylines, but is it too soon? We debate that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Our favorite TV shows are figuring out how to tackle COVID-19. Shows like This Is Us, Grey's Anatomy, and Superstore have made it part of their storylines. Now, of course, Ryan, you are the TV watcher here. Yeah, I I am. I I watch here and there, but we know how much you're into it. You are dedicated. What have you been seeing? What are you liking and not liking? Yeah, so I've, I've watched so much. Grey's Anatomy is, you know, a number one go-to. And, of course, I knew they were going to really touch on the real-life stories of a lot of the essential workers and the first responders that we were seeing uh, or hearing about. And they've done a really, really good job um, about handling everything, right? I thought my main concern was it's too soon. It's it, Who wants to kind of live or watch 
what uh, television in a place where you're allowed to escape who wants to kind of relive everything that they're currently going through. Um, the Good Doctor, they had a couple of episodes when they first premiered where they were in the midst of COVID, but then they made a note um, after those first two episodes saying that we want to kind of continue on in a world that is past this moment, right? Moving the narrative forward. And I really appreciated that. Mm. And that was really nice. Um, but yeah, I think what we're seeing here from reality television to scripted, it's it's difficult. And I think everyone's trying to find out a way of how to balance, you know, scarring folks and dealing with that. And then also yeah. giving people good content. Well, because it could be really triggering. I mean, you want to use TV and your favorite shows to escape everything that's happening. And so, like, if every TV show, it was part of the storyline, would it feel like an escape? Or would it just be like, yeah, I know how what you're dealing with. We're dealing with it every single day. I don't need to hear more and see more about that. Well, I don't know if that's necessarily true because when the pandemic initially started, everyone was watching Contagion. Everyone was kind of preparing themselves Fortune. and putting them through the uh, putting themselves through that. And so it is. I do think there's a large group of people who are okay with watching that type of content. It just for me is depending on how well it's done, right? You know, is it is this going to be a film or a television show that's just over Zoom and you see both characters and you're kind of dealing with the real life Zoom stuff? Um, or is it like kind of like the good doctor trying to move the story forward and picturing a world that we've, you know, made it past this and kind of giving people something to hope for. Um, yeah, that would be nice to see like what's next versus like what we're stuck in. I mean, I I see how it works for comedy. I mean, there has been new shows pop up that are literally based on relationships happening. Yeah over zoom. And it's like, not that I look at zoom enough. I need to look at zoom as a TV show. I mean, come (laughs) on, give me a break here. Uh, But it it is interesting. I'm happy that people are working. I'm happy that our favorite shows are continuing. They're not letting this stop them. Uh, But again, like how much is too much and how soon is too soon to do these things? Yeah. You got to make that decision for yourself. And I think like anything we say, especially on this show, you got to take things in moderation. And so if it's triggering you, then just don't watch it. Find something else. There's plenty of reality television um, on Bravo or any other station that's giving you something less than. And it's actually the reality shows are interesting because you're actually seeing in kind of real time how these people reacted to the news of COVID. And it's not like it's it's still just trying to figure out how they're all doing it. And so I, I do think there's something for everybody out there. Yeah. Speaking of which, I did watch In and of Itself uh, this weekend on Hulu. It's an interesting one. Ooh, Definitely I something I would that recommend. One yet. I haven't seen that one it's yet. All, it's a magic experience, that's all I can say. Now coming up on the show, ACLU's big announcement, just in time for Black History Month. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. Now, coming up on the show, the Elon Musk discussion. We were in on Clubhouse that went viral last night. We're going to break down what we learned. Uh, plus, the Washington Post joins us to discuss Trump's impeachment trial strategy as more of his lawyers come and go. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Infectious disease expert Michael Osterholm said that the nation is facing a Category 5 storm as the new and more infectious coronavirus variant uh, first detected in the UK spreads right here in the US. The fact is that the surge that is likely to occur with this new variant from England is going to happen in the next 6 to 14 weeks. 
And if we see that happen, which my 45 years in the trenches tell us we will, we are going to see something like we have not seen yet in this country. Uh, England, for example, is hospitalizing twice as many people as we ever hospitalized at our highest number. Now, Osterholm, who is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, and actually served on President Joe Biden's COVID-19 advisory board during the transition, is calling uh, for giving as many people as possible, especially older Americans, a single dose of the two-dose vaccine, rather than ensuring everyone gets the full two doses on schedule. All right, that's an interesting strategy. And I'm sure we'll hear more about that, including from Dr. Fauci. Uh, Now, next up, this is happening right in our own backyard, Ryan. Uh, The first tiny home villages are open in Los Angeles to help combat the homeless crisis. Now, this first location in Redondo Beach has 40 homes and 75 beds. The other location has 103 homes and 200 beds. It's a really interesting setup. Uh, And clients moved in today, actually. The tiny homes have heating, air conditioning, on-site residents will have access to meals, showers, and other resources. Now, this is supposed to be a temporary transition towards permanent housing, but I just think this is so great, and I'm glad to see something at least is being done. Now, Deborah Archer, this is an early Yaz queen, a professor at New York University School of Law with expertise in civil rights and racial justice, has become the first black person in the 101-year history of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, to be elected its president. Incredible. Really good news. Yeah, the ACLU announced today that Archer was elected over the weekend in a virtual meeting of the organization's uh, board of directors. She is taking over Susan Herman's spot, uh, who had served as the president since 2008. So congratulations to Deborah Archer. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so for the first time, Evan Rachel Wood is attaching a name to her alleged abuser. It's time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. And of course, trigger warning before we dive in into this um, this part of the segment. Because it is a little intense uh, because the Westworld Emmy nominee dropped a bombshell revelation about the horrific abuse she claims to have suffered while in a relationship with musician Marilyn Manson. Here's how she starts off her statement. She says, the name of my abuser is Brian Warner, uh, also known to the world as Marilyn Manson. Uh, She continues on saying, I was brainwashed and manipulated into submission. I am done living in in fear of retaliation and slander or blackmail. Um, First of all, I had no clue they were ever dating, but would... This happened. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I guess they began their romantic relationship um, when she was a teenager, and they kept it quiet until uh, basically she reached, like, 19. That is (laughs) Yeah, I remember when it happened, and it was very surprising. Really? See, I just never paid attention to... First of all, I'm not listening to Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson often creeps me out, and now there are all these stories also coming out because of this coming out. Um, like he has pictured, like he literally has been on, uh, on interviews talking about how he's pictured bashing her head in. It's like really intense Whoa. stories. Um, and of course we all know, um, that this comes five years after she spoke out about an abusive relationship to Rolling Stone in 2016. But now we know what relationship she was referring to. Any thoughts before I close this out? I mean, it's horrible anytime yeah. that you hear of something like this happening. Uh, you know, 
Uh, it's not surprising just because he's he just seems like a violent persona. And uh, I yeah, but that's a bit of a cliche because of just who he is. Uh, but yeah, hopefully something will be done or I don't know if more stories will come out. But that's horrible to hear about. I don't know. I think she's actually supposed to be uh, speaking uh, in front of Congress soon about uh, abuse and domestic violence. So we'll see where that takes her and we'll report on it if anything major drops. Oh, oh, my God. Quick moment to add into this. Marilyn was actually dropped by his record label today as well. Okay, Um, so it is impacting his career now. Yeah, it is. It is for sure. But that's your T report. Check out her full statement at WeAreChannelQ.com. And of course, let us know what your thoughts are at LGT Show Everywhere. When's the last time you even uh, put out music? Has done anything? He's been pretty much like in a hole. I don't know nothing about this man. All right. Well, uh, coming up next, the Clubhouse chat with Elon Musk that went viral last night. Well, me and Ryan were there and we're going to give you our take and all the scoop next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Clubhouse, this very popular new audio app, which is invite only. And we've talked about it. Go, Go check out the podcast to find out all you need to know. Well, you can see they had their breakout moment last night. I mean, they've already broken out. They have over 2 million downloads. It's a, it's a pretty big deal now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, everyone seems to be on the app. More people joining every single day. Well, they had Elon Musk on yesterday at 10 p.m. Pacific which is pretty late. It was a bit of a late night. But let me tell you, Elon blew up that app. Uh, The one room where he was in, because basically the chats happen in different rooms, quote unquote. So imagine like a conference call, right? There's only so many people allowed in that room. His room had like 5K people and then people were streaming the audio in other rooms. So there was like, <laughs> yeah, overflow rooms. Overflow yes. rooms. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then people are streaming it on YouTube. So it it was everywhere. Uh, and it was very fascinating because you really got a sense of who he was beyond the Joe Rogan interviews, of course. Yeah, I mean, it it was interesting. I, that, actually, to be honest, that was the first time I've ever listened to him speak in a long mm-hmm. form kind of conversation. I've never really been in tune with him. He doesn't really like... Uh, interest me and I think my main question even after listening to that was what makes him so desirable and interesting I'm, I've been really just trying to figure it out because uh, I, I just still don't really know you know one I think to a lot of uh, his fanboys I think it's like he is like this rich dude who it seems like uh, like the Iron Man syndrome kind of like why people love Iron Man he like created everything that people dream of from like rockets to spaceships to a car it's like the ultimate dude dream to be honest that's what I feel like mm, yeah and also he was the first to do a lot of things it's all and I debate this with my boyfriend who's not necessarily a fan he doesn't think what he does is that unique because things have been done but he's he's a marketer he does it in a different way right and he has this like crazy following like people are literally obsessed like a cult following yeah, but we've talked about it here how he's been problematic when it comes to not wanting to use people's correct pronouns. Um, it seems mm, like yeah. he likes to kind of wrap all of whatever he's marketing or whatever he's doing into this like he's like this this genius with an interesting perspective. But it seems like he doesn't even really understand just humanity at certain points. And so I think that's something that feels a little gross. And then it just also feels like this whole thing, and I'm about to go deep here, is kind of like the pedestal that people put him 
on is just another kind of reaction or um, another form of just like white supremacy in a way because there's a lot of genius people who are should be able to get the opportunities that he gets uh, because it's Elon Musk and because of like who he is and I guess the dudes and the bros, the white cishet dudes that want to be like him, mm-hmm. they lift him up versus kind of like lifting other folks up, right? And it sometimes feels like, yes, he's creating and he's done a lot, can't take that away. But when you just hear about him talking about certain things or his perspectives, especially in the way that we did in the conversation, it just felt like, oh, so you're really just very regular. Yeah, he talked about doing chores in the morning, which is like, what are the Elon Musk chores that he's doing? What time is he waking up? Like, I wanted to know more. Uh, he talked about the um, the chip, the Neuralink thing he he's working on where you can have a chip in your brain to like make you smarter, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, he obviously talked about living on Mars, what he said within the next 10 years. What did he say? Is that? Yeah. Impossible? Well, and he was talking about how that's difficult and all these things. Like it was just it. I think so. he was real about it. Yeah. He was actually more real about it and practical about it than we think. Uh, and he did say he, by the way, he is not an anti-vaxxer. If you're wondering, which I thought that was important to mention, considering everything happening. Uh, but he also and this was the, the more interesting part. It didn't involve him, actually. It involved him questioning Vlad, who is the uh, CEO of Robin Hood, who ended up being brought up on stage. And here's like a moment from that. It was pretty entertaining. Would there's something maybe shady go down here? Like, I, it, it's like, it seems weird that you'd get a sudden $10 billion demand, you know, three in the morning. So I wouldn't impute shadiness to it or anything like okay. that. And actually, the NSCC was reasonable. Is anyone holding you hostage right now? No, no, Why I'm okay. Us? Because I mean, like, basically what people are wondering is like, did, did you sell your clients down the road or do you have no choice? And then... So that, yeah, there you go. Some entertainment over the weekend. Uh, you know, we're all missing these conferences like South by Southwest and all these places where we can see people like Elon. So I guess this is replacing that right now. Mm. <laughs> Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. All right. We are wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. So we've been talking about the Nobel Peace Prize nominees, and there's been some very questionable ones, but I'm so excited to inform you all that we've got a good one right here, and we're honoring her in our Yaz Queen of the Day. Are you ready? Oh my God, please, let's do it. Okay, so uh, Stacey Abrams has been given a nomination for a Nobel Peace Prize, and her work is being accredited for Georgia's vote for President Joe Biden in 2020 for the election and for both of the state's new Democratic senators in last month's runoff. Uh, So she did a lot for that, uh, and you know she was credited for that for good reason. And now Lars Haltbrekken, who's a Socialist Party member of Norway's parliament, actually nominated her and said this in a statement today that he nominated her because her work follows in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s footsteps in the fight for equality before the law and for civil rights. I mean, this is huge. Abrams is having a year or I guess the past two years, it feels like one year, but it's, it's been two years now. Uh, and she uh, is just killing it. And, and for good reason. I mean, she's done the work and it'll be amazing to see what happens next. But in the meantime, what an honor. Yeah, it's a it's now this is who I was mentioning earlier in the show, because Jared Kushner and her, they don't it doesn't even seem like they should be in the same sentence. Yeah. So I, I love that she is getting um, 
everything that she deserves because she's worked hard for it. And honestly, uh, they need to be making her in charge of, uh, of like the Democratic National Convention because she just understands what the people want. And she proves it time and time again. And um, yeah, I just she deserves this. She's just worked so hard. Definitely. And the Black Lives Matter movement was nominated last week as well. And that's oh, actually, we have one more Yaz Queen. Oh, that Sorry. you almost forgot. Oh, my goodness. Well, Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett are releasing a second joint album. Of course, we remember uh, their first album in 2014, Cheek to Cheek. It was a collaborative album that everyone loved. Well, they are coming back together. And that, of course, was the beginning of a longtime friendship as well. Uh, but unfortunately, news comes today also about Tony Bennett and that he has Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's really it's really sad, actually. They're... Um, I guess the news reporting about this, they, they talked about a moment where Lady Gaga and Tony are in the studio and, and you know, you have to just speak to Tony and are just people who deal with this in just like short sentences. And she's been doing that, but she looked over at him while in the studio and she broke down crying because he was having a moment where he just wasn't lucid. Aww. And it was just really, really sad because they have gotten really close and I'm happy they're doing this like final album. Definitely. Well, that does it officially for our Yaz Queen of the day. Yeah, Queen. Okay, and end our show today. But we are back tomorrow, uh, same time right here on Channel Q. Actually, same time only for the next few days, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because starting on Thursday, we are going to be doing the show earlier and longer, baby. We're going to be starting at 2 p.m. Pacific, live right here on Channel Q, until 6 p.m. Pacific. So you got us earlier and for Four hours. How about that? Mm -hmm. uh, and we're still posting everything as a podcast. So if you miss any of our shows or interviews, we post everything on the radio.com app. Just search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. Stay tuned for Love Line with Dr. Chris right after this. Have a great night. Bye, y'all.